You're listening to the Law and Business Podcast, hosted by Anthony Verna. We tackle the difficult questions where business and the law intersect to help you run a smarter business and avoid costly mistakes. Brought to you by Verna Law PC, a full-service law firm focusing on patents, trademarks, copyrights, domain names, and advertising law. For more information, call 914-908-6757 or send an email to anthony at vernalaw.com for more information. And welcome to the Law and Business Podcast. We keep continuing with season two. We're here with uh, my own patent agent, Will Jakes. Will, say hello. Yeah, hello. Good to be here again. <laughs> Thanks for uh, making some more time to come on. Always nice to talk with you, Anthony. We have such a great topic. I couldn't afford to miss this one. I'm not going to make a joke that the boss made you do it. <laughs> Well, you know, we all feel these pressures and, you know... <laughs> It's the relationship that counts, <laughs> even if you're being paid. <laughs> so both you and I have had to deal with infringers and counterfeiters, the uh, possibility of copying in, in some aspect in our past and our current lives. And what I want to do today is talk about either finding, dealing with infringers, counterfeiters, and some solutions that you and I have seen throughout our careers. Mm -hmm. And first thing I do want to talk about, though, is defining what infringement is. And on a soft IP basis in copyright law, infringement is basically an unauthorized copy of a work that's protected under copyright law. And that unauthorized copy, it could be made, it could be sold, it could be publicly displayed, any particular amount of rights that's unauthorized in a copy, that's a copyright infringement. Trademark infringement is very similar. Now, it's a little different because in trademark law, we, we do see similar trademarks, not the same trademark could infringe. And certainly there has to be some kind of economic relationship between the plaintiff and defendant's marks and their products. And so we kind of have a formula that we look at to determine if there's infringement. But basically, infringement means similar mark on similar goods and services. And we also have some other trademark thoughts, such as trademark dilution, which is somehow harming the value of a famous trademark. So that's what it is on the softer side of IP. On the uh, harder side of, of IP, how do you look at similarities in product that's patented and a product that might copy or have some similarities to that. Well, I, I got to say that uh, you made a comment. I had to laugh first uh, <laughs> when you talked a little bit about uh, the amount of damages or money that would be there. Certainly, this is not a game you want to get into, you know, unless there is sufficient dollars on the table to oh, absolutely. Make, right, make it a worthy effort. But, you know, I, I would say that, you know, in what we would call the hard IP world or patents in particular, that uh, we kind of parallel with you do. Essentially, you know, copying is copying. It is just a little more difficult in the patenting world sometimes to prove that copying. Because if we're talking about claims in a patent, and, and just as it's hard to maybe compare two contracts to each other, it might be difficult to compare two patents to each other because the wording of one patent versus the wording of another patent may differ even though two products might be in the same industry. 
This is true. This is true. And, and we should make the distinction that when we talk about infringement, we're talking about whether or not there is a product that exists in the marketplace that your patent reads on. Uh, patents, you know, theoretically should should not infringe themselves because right. they, they're supposed to be novel and unique. Sure. But if there is a product out there that copies, as you say, in any claim, each and every element of that uh, what claim. we call direct, you know, infringement sure. of that claim, then you may have basis for saying that that person is quote unquote copying or infringing on your patent by selling that product. At which point it's an, again, an unauthorized copy of a product because there's a, a specific claim that that product reproduces. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Touché. Good. And then I do want to find counterfeiting because that is it in and of itself a very separate thought counterfeiting is the act of taking a company's exact trademark putting it on a product meant to confuse consumers into believing that those consumers are buying a product from that company even though they aren't so when we talk about counterfeiting it's actually a very specific <laughs> type of infringement. So I just want to make sure that that our audience is clear on the two different types of legal actions here. Yeah, it really does uh, kind of depend on where one's value is derived, right? If, if, if I want to sell peas, and I understand that my market is based on, quote unquote, not to uh, name any particular brand maker out there, but if, if I make my dollar selling Del Monte peas, Right. And I, I understand that's what I want to copy as opposed to copying the mark of uh, your nearest ABC general store piece. Well, well yes, absolutely. And every particular situation is different. There are plenty of products out there that have multiple intellectual property rights. There are plenty of products that fall under copyright law and also have a patent attached to them. And of course, the, if they're branded uh, correctly, then there's a trademark attached to it as well. So every product is different. Every situation is different. And certainly when you're looking at food, chances are you're going to be dealing with the branding of the food because for a lot of, you know, like a natural product like peas, those would be grown. And so maybe the quality difference is not in what's grown, but maybe in how they're stored, maybe in how they're shipped, things like that. There is always something behind that brand name yeah, to make uh, yeah. the value worth it. Yes, yes, you're, you're, you're right. And so just to get back to uh, quote unquote, our hard IP elements, patents per se, those things, those functional things that you spoke about mm -hmm. are the very, you know, nature of the things we attempt to protect Great. by patents. We want to protect the composition of a particular thing. We want to protect, you know, how something behaves, how it works technically, how it functions. Sure. Yeah. And so that's how we, quote unquote, distinguish ourselves and derive some value, but only to the extent that it's sold. Sure. So let's talk about some solutions in either finding an infringer or a counterfeiter, dealing with infringers or counterfeiters. I want to quickly talk about lawsuits here because we'll talk about lawsuits elsewhere. And, and the reason why I say quickly is because, of course... Since we're a law firm, that's going to be the number one way of protecting any type of intellectual property right. And 
part of the the issue here is always going to be a cost benefit analysis. It's going to be the value of the intellectual property. It's going to be a part of the value of the business of the intellectual property. I think we can all agree that lawsuits themselves can be very expensive. And so if anybody who is thinking of filing a lawsuit to enforce any intellectual property right needs to, to think about this and have multiple conversations, not just one consultation, but multiple conversations on whether it's worth the fight and the expense. Do you agree with, with that particular line of thinking? Yes, I do. I, okay. I, I, I agree with that, Anthony, wholeheartedly. Uh, okay. You know, I'd, I'd like to add that when one, when one starts to even think about you know, and, and we'll take this up in another show, sure. of course, but, you know, you have to be willing, uh, first of all, to, to bring a contention or an infringement lawsuit against uh, a party that copies, you know, your intellectual property. And then another aspect of, of that, of course, is, you know, there's no uh, moral incentive for one to come to you <laughs> and say, I'm infringing your patent. You have to be your own policeman. Correct. You know, and that's just your initial cost. The other side of the coin is you have to have the ability to take your case forward. And being the police that leads us right into the next topic of what we would call monitoring, because monitoring is an IP holder basically being its own police force. Absolutely. Now, in today's world, a lot of this can be automated. We have a service in which our client's trademarks are monitored, and we are alerted to filings in the Patent and Trademark Office. We are alerted to the time when those applications hit third-party review in time for an opposition proceeding. So we do counsel our clients whenever we get that particular uh, email that that hits and it's an important feature for us because it says look here's what somebody else is doing now is this somebody else a competitor you know that that's question number one is there a direct economic impact between this potential competitor this potential defendant and you and are the trademarks similar so we do the same analysis whenever we get that hit in that particular uh, email notice every single day. Yeah. There are other types of software out there that are excellent for sales. And what that means is that they will see what kind of sales are happening on Amazon, on eBay, on Wish, on Alibaba. Because trust me, Alibaba has many, many infringing <laughs> products. But... All of these particular companies have what I would call an IP review department where you as an IP owner can basically complain about a listing or two listings or 200 listings, whatever the case might be, and state your case for infringement by those particular listings. And these, all of these vendors can easily review and maybe even suspend accounts suspend sales, whatever the case may be, to remove infringement from their own listings. Something interesting also happens with the Apple App Store. Now the Apple App Store has started to send email notices to any 
to any party that receives a complaint against it. So I had a colleague explain that that their particular product has received, uh, or they've received an email. Interesting. Because they're in-house counsel, so they received an email. And it says, blah, 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 party has uh, lodged a complaint against you. What would be your response to it? If you can show that you've got a registered trademark for so many years and in so many countries and things like that, obviously it's not going to be a product that will be taken down from the app store. But Apple itself has started to get a little proactive yeah. in its You know, I have to say, even in the patent world, there's certain aspects of the patent world that parallel exactly what you're going through. So, you know, if there is a, an alleged infringer, a copier of your uh, patented technology or of your patents, you know, they can manage to move away uh, sure. from that threat mm -hmm. uh, by showing prior use over a certain number of years. A lot of changes that can be made with AIA. But, you know, to your first point, let me kind of mention that in, in the patent world, it, it, it can be somewhat more difficult to police electronically, but it's not impossible. We're looking for uh, essentially what you're looking for, but words in our claims, you know, what, again, what I call elements, but we're looking for features, you know, or those words that describe the products that are actually being shown or, or actually being sold, you know, that are covered by those features and elements as they have been described in your patent claim. And so you go out and you can use automated techniques to search, for instance, uh, product manuals, uh, sure. uh, you know, for certain types of products mm -hmm. that are there. You know, one might be even, you know, as laborious as to, you know, go out to your neighborhood uh, grocery store or, <laughs> or department store and actually look at the back of products and see what they have in them. If, for instance, you believe it's being covered by some sort of a composition claim in a, you know, in a patent. Still, some of our best sources are to look at uh, standards that have been, you know, established by uh, organizations, leading organizations like IEEE. American Society for Chemists. Yeah, that's sure. That's, that's another way that you can kind of monitor uh, what's going on in terms of products that might be Right. And since you talked about the difficulty in trying to monitor what products might be infringing the patent, it comes to mind that a company like Amazon is very quick to take down listings when those listings infringe upon a copyright. And mainly that's because of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and the safe harbor that a third-party listing service has under, under the DMCA. They don't want to lose that safe harbor provision. And so these companies will take down an infringing copyright product. But when it comes to something a little more difficult, like, say, a color trademark or a logo trademark or a patent because, of course, this is an extrajudicial request rather than an actual court order, these companies might be a little more slow to take it down or a little more inquisitive. Well, you know, it depends on their power as well, right? Uh, you know, some of my <laughs> clients are not, you know, walking around with as much dollars in their uh, bank accounts as the Treasury of the United States. <laughs> you know, and, and believe me, your copiers and infringers, once they catch wind of that, or let's say more emblazoned, bolder about, you know, maybe not paying as much attention to whether or not sure. they, they, they might be infringing on a patent that, that you hold in your portfolio. So, but, you know, as, as we kind of move ahead, 
with our understanding of whether or not someone is actually infringing, you know, on our patent rights. It's still up to us to bring that, you know, to their attention and not expect that it is something that they themselves will come knocking on your door and say, hey, but I think I might be infringing on your patent. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that's one thing that's important is, is regardless of what we're talking about in this, and you and I have, have our list of notes here, it's always incumbent upon the IP holder to be proactive. Absolutely. If you're not proactive, you can't expect to uh, get uh, any sort of result at, at all. You know, you, you made mention of sites being taken down, pages being taken down. I got no proof of this, but certainly after, you know, maybe making a contact to counsel or spending a fair amount of time on a web page, again, looking for what we do in service to our client, you know, evidence of use. We're looking for those words, those elements that describe right. a product that may right. be infringing our patent. But I have gone back, say, a week later, you know, or so, and that page is no, is, is no longer there. <laughs> you, uh, you know, it reminds me of an anti-counterfeiting suit that we handled a couple of years ago. And while we did sue all of the people in New York City who were selling the counterfeit product, we knew that it was coming from China. It was on the website of the factory that was selling it. The second we sued everybody here that, that sold it, they had to have picked up the phone and called China because then that factory removed it from their website within a, a month of us filing the lawsuit here in the United States against those who were selling the infringing products. So it does make its way back sometimes when you file those those lawsuits. And so monitoring is important for, for that. Monitoring is very important. There are also some some technical things, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about this in the, in the future. Absolutely. You know, uh, Anthony, but, you know, uh, the, the simple, you know, fact of making sure that your ownership rights are, are clear in, in the patents. Only a patent owner can bring a patent suit by statute. And so sometimes we have groups that will come to and not understand that individually they may be able to go out and act on a patent. As, as an example, you know, uh, three partners from college, you know, uh, they're about to run down the road with their uh, uh, new startup idea. Right. And each one of them's a uh, contributing inventor is, in the absence of any other agreement, also oh. an owner. Correct. And can go out on their own and do things with the patent that may not necessarily serve the purpose of the intended company that they're putting together, including being able to go after people who may be copying their inventions. So even those little nuances are things that we encourage people to take a look at while they're monitoring the market and while they're trying to make a decision about whether or not to bring a patent suit against a copyright. Or, excuse me, a copier or Agreed. Agreed completely. Let's think of a couple other maybe non-legal strategies, like maybe more of a business side strategy, but something that, that still works. A couple episodes ago on this podcast, I spoke with John Eastwood of Iger Law, and one of his thoughts was that if anybody is manufacturing in, in China, you need to make sure that you as, a, as an American company have boots on the ground and that you have a good relationship with the factory. Else, 
basically you're teaching somebody how to infringe on your product. And that doesn't matter whether it's a copyright, doesn't matter whether it's a trademark, doesn't matter if it's a patent. You're basically teaching somebody how to infringe if you're not protecting yourself with some good boots on the ground and having a good relationship with the factory owner. So your first question is, is do you have a good relationship with the factory owner? And if not, you need to fly to China if you're manufacturing there and you need to make sure that that it's somebody who understands and appreciates the business. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with you. Uh, many times in our agreements with other parties, let's say our ex-USA manufacturing partners, mm -hmm. we don't uh, spend a fair amount of time in just building the relationship and just understanding how far, you know, that takes your company, you know, in terms of whether or not your manufacturing facility may in fact turn out to be your, your, your competitor, <laughs> you know, you want, you want to, to preclude this. So we have to be very clear, at least in our agreements, as it pertains to our own U.S. law and law in the countries in which you're trying to do business that what you're giving someone is a right to either make, use, sell, export, import, mm -hmm. all of the above or some combination of the above. And you have to be very clear, you know, about what those things are going to be as you go into the agreement and not try to stipulate those things after the fact. Excellent points. Excellent points, Will. Another interesting way of finding infringers are probably what we would call a copyright trap. But in today's world, you can do a trademark trap, you can do a patent trap. It's effectively having something fake in a product in order to see if somebody is copying the fake portion of it. Uh, traditionally, uh, I'd say in the copyright world, there would be a map, you know, with either fake cities or fake uh, streets on it. I spoke to a colleague not that long ago who is in-house counsel of a company, and they recently did fake products. And they asked some of their factories, because this particular company has multiple factories in China, to kind of spec out and build a prototype for a product that this particular company had no intention of building. And uh, because of the, the slight differences in the products that were given to the factories, they were able to figure out, obviously, which factory started to make the product and then go put it on eBay and put it on Amazon. Yeah. So this way now, they knew which factory was actually making the counterfeit products that were not authorized and they were able to you know pick up the phone and go go yell at that factory because now here is a product that they had no intention of selling actually being sold yeah i'm trying to think of a parallel uh, that. <laughs> uh, that's very ingenious by the way. Uh, that, that is you know, that it, was totally it, it, ingenious in the patent world that would be similar you know the the net is is cast somewhat narrowly when i look at uh, copyright your trademark uh, world quote-unquote design world and so our sure. design patents probably come much closer to that and you can you know get claims issued in a design patent that eh, let's say they're not ever intended to be functional utility sure. patents but they may mimic certain things that can quote unquote be shown in a design mm -hmm. what departs from what you said is that these things are not you know necessarily of a size or form factor that is very well defined and so sometimes they may not be picked up very easily in 
my world in terms of what is infringing or what may not be infringing. And so we still have to rely on, in our world, those elements, those features in a claim that speak to how things work. Have they been enabled to execute functionally, either by, again, by composition, either by the method or processes that are being used, so on and so forth, in the patent that you've, uh, you know, been issued, assuming that patent, of course, is deemed to be valid. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you and I certainly had a, had a few phone calls recently with inventors whose uh, ideas may have been published, yeah. even, the, even they may have gotten as far as having their applications published, but yeah. certainly didn't doesn't look like they're getting over the line. Tragic, really, when you look at great ideas, great, great ideas that are derailed because of a couple of missteps very early in the game. You know, uh, we did this in a prior uh, talk, I believe, but, you know, uh, doing the proper and right patent search or prior art search, let's broaden the world, could save our inventors a lot of time, you know, a lot of headache down the road. Agreed. Agreed completely. All right, so we will cap this episode right here. But just remember, there are lots of different ways of handling infringers or counterfeiters, trying to find them, trying to handle them. And don't be afraid to be creative. That's certainly something that we love helping businesses with, trying to find creative solutions to these problems. Yes, yes. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks for uh, taking your time for always this episode. A, always a pleasure when the boss says speak. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks. This has been the Law & Business Podcast. Visit VernaLaw.com for more episodes. To contact Verna Law PC, send an email to anthony at VernaLaw.com or call 914-358-6401.